At Generations, we are doing great things to minister to the lives of people both locally and internationally. We accomplish this ministry through your financial gifts. What makes living in this new millennium so wonderful is the fact that no matter where you live or what time it is, there is a way you can partner with the vision of the church by sowing your donation. There are now four ways that you can give. One, we have tithe and offering boxes at the main doors in the auditorium that can be used anytime we meet. Two, we also have our mailing address on our giving envelope so that you can mail in your tithe and offering to P.O. Box 5005, Granbury, Texas, 76049. Three, secure online giving for both one-time and reoccurring gifts is available through our websites at generationspeople.org and .mobi, as well as through our app. And four, our giving envelopes also have our QR code on them, which can be scanned with your smartphone at any time for a one-time donation or reoccurring ones too. Through these four options, we hope to partner with you so that we can minister to more lives and make a greater impact than ever before. I'd like to think Jesus is a great person. Uh, I just... I... It's a, it's to me it's a silly story. It's idolization basically. The idea that there is a human being that can be viewed as a god. I I, I believe that that uh, the teachings of Jesus uh, they ring true to me. This the way it makes sense to live that way. Jesus I believe was a liberal and I think looking at where we're going, I think he'd be happy to see that people are becoming more and more accepting. I think I'm, I grow more curious about that every day um, uh, and, and how I can be a better person um, maybe by following his teachings and, and maybe it will be a, a fit for me and maybe it won't but you know I'll, I have a lifetime to figure that out. Colossians chapter 1 beginning with verse 15 says he is the image of the invisible God. This was written by Paul, who was originally named Saul, who was a persecutor of the church, had official papers to arrest believers, put them in jail, and wreak havoc in their lives because he was anti-Jesus. And the Lord sovereignly interrupted his journey to a town in, in Syria called Damascus and blinded him for three days. And he actually saw the Lord. So when he says he is the image of the invisible God, he says it with great conviction. The firstborn over all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him from the tiniest atomic particle to the biggest star everything was made by him he is the word made flesh in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god so that creative word of god is jesus verse 17 and he is before all things and in him all things consist he is the head of the body the church who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, 
and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you to speak to us today from your word. Help us, Lord, to hear what you want us to hear as individuals and as a congregation for the benefit of the preaching of the gospel and the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Wednesday, we discussed this question, is Jesus really God? Can you ask somebody that? Here is Bono, the leader of U2. Of course, there was a historical Jesus. No, I'm talking about God. Oh, right. And, and do well, I see, I, the, the person of Christ is my way to understand uh, God. Do you pray? Yes. To whom or what do you pray? To and Christ. Way? To Christ. Yeah. And, and what do you pray for? I pray to get to know um, <laughs> the will of God, because then the prayers have more chance of coming through. I mean, that's the thing about prayer, isn't it? I mean, we don't do it in a very lofty way in our family. There's just a bunch of us on the bed, usually. We have a very big bed in our house. And all our, we've prayed with all our kids. We, we you know, we just, we, we read the scriptures, we pray. It's not even regular. Sometimes if we go to church on a Sunday, we go when the church has ended, and we'll just go in on our own as a family. For peace and quiet. For peace and quiet. And we'll pray, usually about people that we know who are struggling with something, um, illness so, so, or so whatever. Then what or who was Jesus as far as you're concerned? I think it's, the, it's a defining question for a Christian, is who was Christ. And, and I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher. or a, you know, Because actually, he went round saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God, or he was not. No, no, nuts. nuts. Yes. Forget yes. rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like, I mean, Charlie Manson-type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that... All the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. I, so I think therefore it follows that you believe he was divine. Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe that he rose physically from the dead. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have no problem with miracles. I'm living around them. I am one. So, so when you pray then, you pray to Jesus. Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe that he made promises which will come true. Yes. I do. Either he was a son of God or he was a nutter. Another person from the British Isles, former atheist C.S. Lewis, author of many books, including the children's books, Chronicles of Narnia, had this to say about Jesus in reference to those who say, oh, he was a great teacher, or he was a prophet, or a great thinker, or a great philosopher, or a great leader. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. Who is Jesus? Who is he? I believe he's the founder of the world's largest religion. 2.2 billion people identify themselves as being Christian. Whether or not they're fully converted, that is certainly open for debate. He is the most compelling person of all time. Time magazine publishes these top 100 lists, you know, the the top 100 people that made a difference last year. Well, they made a list one time of the most significant figures in history. And Jesus made number one of the top 100. Coming in at number 10 was Thomas Jefferson. Number nine was Alexander the Great. Number eight was Aristotle. Number seven was Adolf Hitler. Had an impact on the world's history, did he not? Number six, George Washington. Number five, Abraham Lincoln. Number four, William Shakespeare. Number three, Muhammad. Number two, Napoleon. That was surprising, but this list was compiled by some of the world's greatest minds. And coming in at number one as the most significant figure in history is the Lord Jesus. Had the greatest impact on history. I mean, it's the year 2015 because of him. Going back to the time when he began his earthly life. The beginning of his reign, Anno Domino, A.D. Popular now to call the year C.E., meaning Common Era, 2015. But that doesn't fool anyone. Everybody knows it's, it's A.D., time of the Lord. Did Jesus really live? Some people say he never existed and they devoted their lives to trying to prove he didn't like those that try to prove the world's flat, we didn't land on the moon. Even some people that question whether or not the Holocaust happened. Meanwhile, there's Holocaust museums scattered around various parts of the world to preserve in memory because people love to change history. But somehow they fail in the case of Christ. He is etched in world history. This answer, did Jesus really live, involves a studying of history and not science. Science is the study of natural things, natural creatures, while history researches past events. The lives of people of the past is what history is. In science, a standard of proof is evidence that is based on repeated testing. We know this to be true because we have given these tests over and over again and come out with the same outcome. Whereas in history, the standard of proof is evidence based on eyewitness reports. Now, people often put a spin on history, give their view of the world's events. You get that on Facebook, at the grocery store, at the oil change place, and even at the barber shop. People give you their spin on the world's history, but it all originates with the reports of eyewitnesses. And some people will say, well, history is recorded by the victors. Well, that's true if everybody else is dead. 
But those that survive have their version of history. If you don't believe it, just visit one of the Indian reservations in our country. The indigenous people have their version of history because of eyewitness reports. And so it is with Christ, we have eyewitness reports. Is there any evidence that he lived? Here we are, going on 21 centuries after his life. The four Gospels were written nearest to the time of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and are considered to be the work of eyewitnesses. And they certainly had the help and friendship of other eyewitnesses when writing their books. Luke begins his book in chapter 1 of his Gospel. He says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world delivered them to us. Verse 3, it seemed good to me, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Some people believe Theophilus was an actual person he wrote his gospel for, as when other people believe it was just a symbolic name representing the lover of God. Theo being God, philos, phileo being the person who loves God. Verse 4, he says that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Chapter 2, he begins with some historical facts so you can locate in history where and when these things begin to happen and also in chapter 3, who was king, who was governor, who was emperor, what edicts were made, that kind of thing. But outside the Bible, there's another writer, Flavius Josephus, a historian who wrote 20 books known as Antiquities of the Jews. He wrote them some 60 years after Christ's resurrection. And you can purchase these books in one single volume on Amazon, Antiquities of the Jews. And in his writings... Book 18, chapter 3, beginning with verse 3, he had this to say about Jesus. He mentions him in three different places, and this is the one that's most significant in my opinion. He said, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ and went upon the accusation of the principal men among us. Pilate had condemned him to a cross. Those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God have foretold those things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared 60 years later. His first 10 books he wrote on the history of the Jews based on the Old Testament scriptures. The last 10 books he picks up where the Old Testament leaves off and continues up to the present. And so he had to cover Jesus, a significant part of history of the world even in his lifetime. I'm not sure what his age was when he wrote this book, but the knowledge of Jesus being alive and being real was without question in his mind. So to say he never existed is like believing the earth is flat. 
How did Jesus live? Well, according to eyewitness accounts, we saw that he healed sick people, blessed children, performed miracles. He pardoned those who were unworthy. He condemned the self-righteous. He fulfilled over 350 prophecies. We're going to consider that in a moment. He backed up all that he said with action. This is how that he lived. Now, 350 prophecies, how could he fulfill that many prophecies? They were recorded in the 39 books of the Old Testament, written by over 30 people over a span of several centuries in many different surroundings and settings by different types of individuals, from kings to farmers, from palaces to the wilderness. These scriptures were made and interspersed throughout them were prophecies, some of them greatly detailed, like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, which is the thoughts of someone being crucified on the cross. It's amazing that he fulfilled all these. Well, if they were on his bucket list and he checked them off, then he did it. No, a lot of these prophecies had nothing to do with his actions. Like him being born in Bethlehem, his mama was from Nazareth. She had to go to Bethlehem because of the edict issued by... Caesar Augustine, that everyone had to go back to their town of origin to be registered for taxation purposes. Going to Egypt was part of the prophecy about him. This had to be about through the wickedness of Herod, who wanted to kill children that he felt were a threat to his reign as king. And so they escaped and went to Egypt for a period of time when he was little. Stuff like that he had nothing to do with in terms of his actions. Let's talk about the laws of probability. I don't know a lot about this other than what I've read. It's considered a science and attempts to determine the chance that a given event will occur. The value and accuracy of this form of mathematics is involved in fixing insurance rates. You know what the likelihood of your being struck by lightning is? One in 700,000. The likelihood of you being killed by lightning is one in two million. Has anybody ever met somebody struck by lightning? I had a pastor in Houston years ago who was struck by lightning as a kid. The likelihood of a meteorite landing on your house is one in 180 trillion. So I imagine insurance for that is quite cheap. The likelihood of your death is one in one. In 1969, Peter Stoner, a mathematician, wrote a book called Science Speaks. It was published in Moody Press. It was concerning some calculations he did with 600 students at Westmont College in determining the probability of one person fulfilling eight of the major prophecies surrounding Jesus' life. And they came up with their figures. He whittled them down to very conservative and then submitted their figures to other experts. And they did their whittling, whittling down of the numbers. And here's what they came up with. The likelihood that one person could, fu- could fulfill eight of the major prophecies concerning Jesus is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros behind it. One in 10 to the 17th power. To demonstrate how much that is, if you covered the state of Texas in silver dollars, two feet thick, 
and mixed in those silver dollars was a special silver dollar, let's say a gold dollar coin. Mix it in with that and then send a blindfolded man into the middle of Texas and let him explore all he wants till he feels he has that coin before removing his blindfold. The likelihood that he pulls out the right coin is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Yet Christ fulfilled over 350 prophecies. Absolutely amazing. People that are unbelieving have to be determined to not believe when you consider these odds. What did Jesus have to say? Well, he had a lot of things to say. He gave commands that if you obey them, they'll heal your relationships. They'll make peace with your enemies, and you'll be preaching the gospel everywhere you go. He also talked about who he was. It was important to him that people understood who he was. He said that he was the Messiah. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He said that he was one with God. He said that he was the only way to God. He said, you've seen me. You've seen God. He proclaimed he was the Son of God. His words were considered blasphemy. According to Leviticus 24, blasphemy was a crime that was considered worthy of capital punishment. This is why they put him to death. They considered him a blasphemer. But as you can see, if they had searched scriptures, who knows how many hundred he fulfilled up into his being accused legally in court, that something unique was going on that should have held back. So it was their unbelief, not his blaspheming, but it was their unbelief that caused them to put him to death. Did he really die? Some people say he didn't die, he escaped and died a natural death somewhere else. Well, he was hastily convicted of blasphemy, a crime, if guilty, worthy of capital punishment. He was tortured publicly and executed by professionals on an ugly hill called Golgotha. And you can go see that hill. It means hill of the skull. It looks like a skull. It's a very ugly place. He was buried in a sealed and guarded tomb. And theories about him fainting rather than dying didn't exist for centuries. Even his enemies didn't buy that. It was a mystery to those that refused to believe the story of the resurrection. Is there any evidence for his resurrection? Yes. First evidence is his enemies. His enemies, yeah, they're the one that killed him. So through his death, resurrection comes, proving everything he said to be true, proving his authority over death, proving his divinity. But also, they proved that his resurrection was not a fraud because they wanted not only to end his life, but they wanted to end the movement he began because he was a threat to their religious system. So they wanted to put an end to everything about him. And you can see it throughout the history of the church of them trying to wipe out his followers. So... Because he had predicted his resurrection in three days, they were the ones that said, we've got to have guards set up so no one can steal the body. So they kept the scene of the crime or the scene of the incident pure and sterile, sealed with police tape, as it were, making it a crime to go past it, and wound up serving the purpose of God because uh, there was no fraud committed. The empty tomb. 
in their face. Nobody, the tomb is empty, publicly buried there. Now it's empty. In Jerusalem, really close to the place where he's crucified, is the tomb that perfectly fits the description the scriptures give of the place where he's buried. You can go in there and look at this thing. The reports of eyewitnesses who are willing to die and endure torture without recanting their faith. There have been plenty of people die for what they believe, but nobody dies for what they know is a hoax. And then the enthused family. To you this may not seem like a a big deal, but to me this is huge because you can fool a lot of people, but you can't fool your kinfolk. They're the last ones to, to believe. In fact, Jesus said a prophet can be honored everywhere except in his hometown. You ever go to a family reunion and they don't really know you? Yet they fully embrace the resurrection story. I mean, even in the presidential election, we see Jeb throwing his brother George under the bus. More than once I've heard him do it. Why? He really knows George. But here's James being thrown off the temple for believing in his brother's resurrection, landing on the ground, his body broken as they're going to stone him to death, and he's continuing to say he believes in the resurrection. He believes his brother is the Messiah Refusing to recant in the face of death. There's the empowered church that was born just a short walk from the empty tomb. And we're here today as a result of that. There's the embracing of the Roman Empire. After three centuries, in the fourth century, the empire officially embraced Christianity and the resurrection story. It couldn't be disproven. And we have the Roman Catholic Church with us to this day and the Eastern Orthodox Churches with us today that all trace their roots back to this legalization of Christianity and forced conversions that began to happen as a result, which was unfortunate because it brought mixture into the church. We have the enduring results. We're here today because of the resurrection. Why get out of bed on a Sunday on your day off and... Take time out to be with people that aren't all like you and, and to do things like this because the resurrection is something to celebrate. Our Messiah is God. And we have hope in our resurrection one day because he's the first fruits. And of course, then there's the conversion of pagan holidays. Easter got trashed. Ishtar's holiday got trashed by the resurrection. He arose from the dead on Easter. We celebrate it. Today And yet we have the remains of this pagan holiday with Easter bunnies and Easter eggs and stuff like that. If you do that, I'm not throwing rocks at you. But we wouldn't be doing that if it was not for the resurrection of Jesus. Evidence for his resurrection. Is Jesus really God? I don't know that I've answered all your questions about this, but hopefully I've giving you some food for thought. If you already believe he's God, hopefully you've gained some fresh inspiration to speak out your faith to those that need to know who Jesus is. But if you don't really know him, please consider his claims and eyewitness accounts 
And the results that you see all around you, there's dozens of people in this room whose lives were changed when they believed in the resurrection story. And also there's a website you can go to, exploregod.com. Now, let me, let me warn you of this, and that is of unbelief. If you don't want to believe, nobody can make you. God gives you the power of choice to exercise how you do. So keep in mind the importance of your unbelief being genuine unbelief and not just stubbornness. Because willful unbelief claims to want more evidence but never has enough. Why? Because I don't want to believe. Willful unbelievers do biased research with agendas. What's their agenda? Not the truth. Their agenda is to disprove what they don't like. They'll always do their best to reject facts they do not like. Willful unbelievers refuse to change the opinions they formed before they were informed. They seek to discredit contrary witnesses. What about Christians that decide not to believe? How do you explain that? Two possibilities. One is maybe they never were believers. And two is maybe they're deeply hurt. And someone has hurt them. And someone needs to go and try to make things right with them. They'd find their self being able to believe again. There's plenty of atheists in the world that are atheists not for intellectual reasons, but for emotional reasons. That's why if you get into in a discussion with one of them, you have to be gentle. I remember in South Padre Island being in a debate with Chewy, a guy I just met in a restaurant. He said he was an atheist. Runs a cigar shop on the river walk in San Antonio. He was in South Padre for a few days, and so was I. I actually enjoyed talking to him, especially when I found out Chewy was his nickname. His real name was Jesus. <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing. I said, your days are numbered, man. <laughs> the man on the right is Billy Graham. This is in the 40s, Wheaton College. The man on the left is Charles Templeton. They were evangelists together. They even did some ministry, I think, in Europe. But Charles, in 1948, began to have doubts about the Christian faith. And less than a decade later, in 57, he publicly declared that he had become an agnostic, was no longer a Christian. In 1996, he wrote a book entitled Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Years later, while doing research for his book entitled A Case for Faith, former atheist and journalist Lee Strobel found Charles Templeton, who was in his 80s at the time, and interviewed him, not knowing two years later Charles would die. He recounts asking Mr. Templeton, quote, how do you assess this Jesus, unquote, Strobel writes, it seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. 
It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, quote, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness, unquote. Strobel was taken aback. He said, you sound like you really care about him. Templeton replied, well, yes. He is the most important thing in my life. And he stuttered, I, I, I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Templeton continued, everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes. And tough, just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Uh, But no, he said, he's the most... Templeton stopped and started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words, I never expected to hear from him. Quote, and if I may put it this way, Templeton said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself, writes Strobel. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly, but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that. Explore God with us. Come join us on Wednesdays as we talk about questions like this. Be willing to have your unbelief challenged and be willing to challenge our faith. You'll be allowed to say whatever you want and no one will argue with you, call you names, label you, or put you down. We need to learn what our culture thinks. We need to be equipped. There's far too many angry Christians in the world whose witness has become totally irrelevant to the unbelievers around them who are hurting and in need of a Savior. And we pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that your word would have an impact upon us in such a way that we would know you are you.
we would know that you are who you proved yourself to be by rising from the dead, that we would see the opportunity that is ours to have a relationship with you, Lord. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who's not a believer. I pray that my words would be seeds that would plant in their heart that would result in the harvest of saving faith. Lord, help our unbelief in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Jesus is alive and well, and he answers prayer. He gave this promise, if you'll ask anything in my name, I will do it. In a moment, I'm going to ask our prayer team to come forward and line up across the front up here with me. And we'll be up here to pray in the name of Jesus with anyone that wants to receive prayer about anything. Scott Webster last Sunday had a heart attack. He's with us today playing bass. Amen. Thank you, Lord, and thank you, Granbury Hospital. Oh, how about them? It's great. And we stand as Pastor Shake leads us in a song. Prayer team, if you could go ahead and come on up. Line across the front. If you'd like to receive prayer as we're coming forward, come on down and join us. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh my soul. Worship is holy name. Sing like ever before. Oh Don't miss this opportunity. We're here to pray with you about anything. God bless you. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, the peace that passes all understanding for his glory and the spreading of the gospel.